seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 3 to 14 again this morning. Pat looked at this uh, last week when he was with us, and um, we will probably spend this week and next week also uh, in the same text doing an overview before then we take uh, smaller bits of the text. <laughs> it's an important text. Uh, it's an important book. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians, we're doing a series. We're just starting off this uh, series on the book of Ephesians. It's a, a book about the church. It's a letter that Paul wrote to uh, the churches, but it's about the church. <clears throat> and uh, this opening, as um, Pat mentioned last week, verses 3 through 14 in the original text is uh, one run-on sentence. It's over 200 words, uh, 201, 202 words. Um, and then, uh, so I've just been calling it the sentence. Um, it's, it's one of the most amazing sentences ever written. It's, it's some of the richest, most densely packed uh, theology that you'll find in the Bible, um, let alone anywhere else. Uh, there are uh, so many doctrines here, and um, you may not understand what all these doctrines mean, but there's doctrines of the, the Trinity, Christology, the doctrine of um, uh, who Jesus is, uh, pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, so there's soteriology, the study, study of salvation, and then within that there are these subsets of theology, there are election, predestination, atonement, these are all here in this text, the doctrine of revelation is here in this text, uh, God's uh, special revelation. Uh, to us for our uh, salvation. <clears throat> Throw a bunch of big words at you um, and uh, you may wonder why. Why are we talking about theology? Why theology? Uh, why is that important? Some people think it's a waste of time, right? Uh, some people think it's just impractical, doesn't really intersect with my daily life. Some people think it's pretty much irrelevant. Um, others are actually suspicious of doing theology. There's plenty of places uh, plenty of Christian churches, actually, where you would go and um, they would not recommend that you do theology. They'd say, it's kind of scary when people go off to seminary and do all that theological study. Um, some people view it as a threat to our faith, even. Um, theology is just thinking about God. And you would think, you would kind of assume that anybody who was a Christian, anybody who thought uh, you know, salvation is about having a relationship with God and knowing God, that they'd be all right with doing a little theology every once in a while. Uh, it's just thinking about God because salvation really is, the way that we see it uh, held forth to us in the scriptures, it's knowing God, right? And that happens with your mind as well as it does with your heart. Salvation is about knowing God. It's about knowing the one true God as he's revealed himself. It's not, we're not just making this stuff up. We're not just doing speculative theology. We're doing biblical theology. It's according to God's revelation about himself uh, for our relationship with him uh, as it's recorded in the scriptures. So we're going to do a little theology this morning. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to it. So hopefully, um, hopefully we'll, we'll uh, get to know God better through this text. Let me pray, then I'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, you've made us to be able to know you and to have a relationship with you, yet we have wandered away from you in our sin and our rebellion. Our hearts are far from you. Our minds are not fixed on you. We don't think well of you. We pray that you would help to shape the way that we think of you. Uh, shape it by your word. Give us your spirit who enables us to understand your word and not, not just to understand it, but to accept it. 
as something that will um, completely overturn our perspective of you so that we might enjoy a relationship with you that includes a deep, intimate knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that uh, you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, we've got to take a few weeks to look at this because it's very difficult to understand. And, and the, the translations all break it up into several uh, sentences, but really it is one continuous thought, one doxological thought, if you will. It's a, it, uh, Paul is bubbling out with uh, praise um, for the, the deep doctrines that he's considering. But uh, particularly what we're going to focus on today, knowing God. Who, who is this God? And Pat asked that question last week, and he did a great job uh, uh, introducing. I'm not here to shore up anything that he taught. I'm here to add to it and supplement. So um, knowing God and what salvation is, that's going to be our focus this morning. Knowing God and being saved are actually intrinsically, uh, uh, they're, they're inextricably united. In, in the scriptures and especially in this passage, they're inextricably bound up with one another, knowing God and being saved. Uh, if you remember from our um, recent series on Genesis 1 through 3, God made us human beings, male and female, people in community. He made us in his image to be able to experience community with him, to, to enjoy relationship with him. We, we departed from that plan. We chose the way of self-love. Um, and in doing so, we cast the world into darkness and distortion. And now, nothing quite reflects, uh, especially not humanity. We don't quite reflect God's glory and his, his attributes and, um, and what he is like. We don't do that as well as we're supposed to. It's impossible for us now to truly know God um, as, as he really is unless he reveals himself to us. It's impossible for us to know him until he tells us who he is and what he's like. Right? We would never imagine God as he truly is because we're prone to um, project our image onto him. Right? That's what people do uh, in all the world religions. We create gods in our image. Right? Uh, we project what we think about ourselves onto God. We tend to think of God as someone who is pretty much like us, maybe only quantitatively greater 
right? Quantitatively, not qualitatively different. Not essentially different. Not a difference of kind. Just degree, right? He's bigger, he's stronger, he's smarter, he's nicer, but kind of down at the root, the core, he's just like a human, right? That's what we expect. Uh, but the problem is, humans are self-absorbed. We're not the way that we're supposed to be. We don't reflect God's image the way we're supposed to anymore. We are now self-absorbed, um, and we're really distorted reflections, not very much like him. Right? Not very much like him. He is holy, the scriptures say, and that is to say that he is vastly different from us. He is distinct from us. He is utterly different, which makes it difficult for us, very difficult, even impossible, really, for us to just theorize and to imagine what God is like. Um, Michael Reeves said this, and I, I've used this quote quite a bit. I think we even talked about it a little bit last week in the sermon discussion. He says, uh, he's got a great book on the Trinity, Delighting in the Trinity. Michael Reeves says, when I ask atheists to describe the God that they don't believe in, they describe Satan rather than the Trinity. People's baseline expectation about what God is like, who God is, the one that I reject because I don't like him, they're describing really a beefed up version of self-absorbed humanity, which is really Satan. And it's not uh, God himself as, as he truly is. We want nothing to do with the, the power-hungry, arbitrary, cruel, distant tyrant that we imagine God to be because we imagine him to be just a bulked-up version of self-oriented people like us. Right? We want nothing to do with a God like that. But when we imagine him to be that way, we're not imagining him correctly. Right? We're, we do not know him. We need him to come and to set us straight so that we can actually know him. We, we need him to come and overturn our presuppositions and our prejudices about him to reveal himself to us as he truly is so that we can know him. Because, again, that's what salvation really is. That's what it's for. To know God forever. Um, having a relationship with him. And we're saved for knowing God, through knowing God. We're saved for that goal of knowing God through actually rightly and properly knowing God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. When God came into the world, he came into the world as a human being. He came into the world in the person of his son, Jesus. He disclosed himself to us. He revealed himself to us perfectly for our relationship with him. So when we look at Jesus, we see him in the, in the Gospels, he's recorded in the, in the scriptures. When we look at Jesus, we see what God does. We see what he's really like. We see who God really is, who he essentially is. Because when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. And we discover... God to be someone who just explodes all of our categories, all of our preconceptions, all of our prejudices about him. He shatters them because he is so utterly good. He is so utterly good and it's so unlike us that it just does not compute. It's, it's hard to even understand how someone so good comes into this world and interacts with us. It's hard to, to comprehend, to grasp his goodness even because we're so distinct from him in our non-goodness, right? So um, 
He is so utterly good, and it's, it's very unlike us, which makes it hard to fathom. We cannot speculate this on our own. We cannot uh, imagine this on our own. Uh, we need him to show us. God is one God. This is what Jesus shows us when we see him in the Gospels. He is one God and one God only, whose essence, whose substance, whose being is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, We see that clearly in Jesus' life. We see it especially at his baptism, where the Father's voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the people see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, the Son, at his baptism. Right. So at Jesus' baptism, the Trinity revealed himself, the one God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed himself, and he revealed himself to be for us. Because Jesus was baptized for us, for our good. Right? Um, and so Paul celebrates the Trinity, who has, he's the Trinity for us. God is, is, is a God for us. Paul celebrates this Trinity, and he celebrates in our, in our passage the saving operations, the saving actions of each of the persons of the Trinity, in order, Father, Son, and Spirit. The acts performed by each person that we see uh, here in this uh, Ephesians chapter 1, the acts performed by each person, um, they not only accomplish something, like we expect actions to do something, to achieve something, they do that, but more, right? They not only accomplish something, they reveal something about what God is really like, about who he really is, right? We can know God because he has done these things for us. And so, talking about the Father, uh, very briefly we'll talk about each of the persons. The Father has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He has uh, literally graced us with his glorious grace. He's showered it upon us, and he's made his will known to us. So this describes the Father. He's been named as the Father. This is who he is. The, the first person of the Trinity is a Father. So you can know from, from his actions here that he is actually a Father. Right? These are the kinds of things that a Father does. He's a good Father. He's a loving Father. We can hardly begin to explore all the glories of this reality, but just one aspect of his fatherhood is this. Fathers initiate relationships with their children, don't they? Fathers initiate. Fathers come first. Fathers give life. Fathers love and care first before love is reciprocated. Often regardless of whether or not love is actually ever reciprocated. Fathers come first. They love first. They give life. This goes for mothers too. We're not Xing you out of the equation, but we're talking about God as father, so... That's the language I'm I'm using here. Fathers, your children were conceived in an act of love, were they not? Uh, Maybe you wanted children before they were even conceived. You thought about them before they became an actual reality. And you started to love your children before you even saw them, right? Right? when they're in the womb, you began to love your children before you saw them. 
You prepared for their arrival with great anticipation, probably building stuff according to mom's desires, uh, putting things together that you got from Ikea. You prepared for their arrival. You were excited about it. You shaped the environment in which they would live as much as you possibly could according to your ability and your resources. You chose a name for them. You rearranged your life for them. And when you first saw your child, something profound happened. They looked at you, and they eloquently expressed the deepest gratitude for everything that you've done and, and everything that you are, right? And it just the world exploded because there was this mutual reciprocal love, right, when you first saw your child. No? <laughs> no. You showered them with love for a long time before you got anything back from them, right? before they reciprocated. You showered them with love and affection and care. Fathers love first. Right? Fathers love first, and that's what kind of God the one true God is. He's the kind of God who loves first. In the eternal relationships of the triune God, God is Father. And Paul celebrates that there was never a time, because this is who God is, he is a father. There was never a time before the father loved his people. God has always been a God who loves you. And uh, that should be encouraging and comforting to us. We will not lose his love. He has set it on us before the foundations of the world. Right. He's loved us first. The love, in fact, that he's always had for his beloved son, the unique son, the second person of the Trinity, um, the, the love that he's always had for his beloved son with whom he is well pleased, he determined before he laid eyes on you, before he made anything, he determined to set that love upon you even though you in and of yourself are not well pleasing in his sight. Right? Um, he determined that we would relate to him in the very same way that his own son, the second person of the Trinity, relates to him. Right? And so in, in order for that to happen, he's, he's exercising all the resources that are at his disposal, which are infinite. Right? In order for that to happen, at the right time, he sent his son into the world to become one of us, except without sin, to live for us, to live on our behalf, so that we could be found in him, so that we could be united to him, right? so that we could be in him and enjoy the son's relationship to the father as we're united to Christ by faith. So in him, this language appears uh, some form of it 11 times in this one sentence, in the sentence here at the beginning of Ephesians. Um, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Right? In him, we have forgiveness of trespasses. In him we have the culmination of the Father's purposes for all of creation and for our very lives in Christ. So uh, Irenaeus wrote, uh, he's one of the ancient church apologists, said uh, in, in a book called Against Heresies, which he wrote in about the year 180, he said, because of his measureless love 
he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. He became what we are so that we could become what he is. Not that we would become divine, but that we would enjoy the place in the relationship, the son's own place in relationship with the father. And John Donne said a few hundred years ago, a uh, great English poet, who, uh, we sing one of his songs. Uh, he says that the Lord, the son of God, had a thirst in heaven as well as upon the cross. He thirsted our salvation there. And in the midst of the fellowship of the Father from whom he came and of the Holy Ghost who came from him and the Father and all the angels who came by a lower way from them all, he desired the conversation of man for man's sake. He that was God the Lord became Christ, a man, and he became no man, a dead man, to save man. So it was because the perfect son, the eternal son, the divine son, was willing to share with us his own relationship with the father that we are able to call God our father. Right? It's because he gave his life for us, he lived and died in our place for us, so that everything that's true about him, and especially his relationship with the father, could be ours, uh, so that we could call God our father, so that we could pray to God as Father, as Jesus instructs us to pray to God as our Father, to approach him without fear but with confidence in his love. This is only because Jesus, the Son of God, was willing. He had a thirst for our salvation, and he came into the world to save us. And uh, Fred Sanders says that the good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and given us a share in that fellowship. Right? So the Son's own relationship with the Father the Son has the Father. That's what Jesus says. The Son has the Father. And the Father is the Son's inheritance. And the Son shares that very privilege with us. That's what this passage says, uh, that we have an inheritance in Christ. And in Christ, our eternal inheritance is God himself. It's hard to grasp that. It's hard to understand exactly what that means. But our inheritance, what we will enjoy forever in eternity is God himself. Uh, Psalm 16 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So chosen portion, this is language of uh, inheritance. Um, When a son divides up his land, uh, when a father divides up his land between his sons, the best part that he gives to the oldest son is the chosen portion, right? It's choice. Uh, It says, The Lord is my chosen portion. You hold my lot The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The lines of my inheritance as the land is divided up. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. This is what it means to have God as your inheritance. Which the Son shares with you because of God's grace. We'll never exhaust the riches of this inheritance. Um, and so, a bit of uh, serious theology here, um, because it's Pentecost Sunday. Talk about the Holy Spirit just for a minute. The Son enjoys the Father in what is called the fellowship of the Spirit. Right? The Son enjoys the Father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Son has the Father, 
because the Father gives himself to the Son in the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God-given. The Spirit is the Father giving himself to the Son, and the Son giving himself to the Father. Right? That's who the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit is, in a sense, not to depersonalize him, but the Spirit is the holy love of God, the fellowship of God. He's the Spirit of unity. That's the way Paul talks about him a little bit later in uh, chapter 4. The Spirit is God-given. He's God, in a sense, coming at you. <laughs> right? Um, not just God in and of and for himself, but God for you, to you. Right? That's who the Holy Spirit is. When the Father gives his Spirit, God gives himself. And when the Son gives his Spirit... God gives himself. And uh, this has happened in the Godhead for all eternity. And at the, at the right time, the fullness of time in history, this happened as the Spirit was given to us, right? which is chiefly seen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descending upon God's people so that now God's people have a relationship with God that is, is unique. It is profound, it is actually divine. We have the divine love of God poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, Romans 5 says. Right? So in our text, it says that the Spirit is given to us, and we have two things because of that. We are sealed, and we're guaranteed our inheritance. We're sealed, um, which is kind of an ancient way of talking about um, putting your stamp or putting your signature on something to prove uh, authenticity of it or to prove ownership of it, right? So um, the seal of the Holy Spirit is that we're marked as God's own people until he comes to take final possession of us. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is God saying, you are mine. And the guarantee of our inheritance is the full assurance that we will take final possession of him, our inheritance. The guarantee is our ability to say to God, you are mine. So having the spirit means that we are his and he is ours. And this is language of uh, beauty and intimacy and deep communion that we see through the scriptures. We are his and he is ours. We belong to him and he belongs to us. We have the Father's Spirit assuring us of his fatherly love. And we have the Son's Spirit catching us up into the relationship of the Son with his Father. We have that as we've been given the Holy Spirit. And all of this, all of this tells us what God is really like. Not just the things that he's done through history, not just the things he's done in our life, in our relationship with him. It tells us what he's really like, what kind of God he really is, who he really is. You cannot be mistaken about who this God really is. The one true God is lover, love, and beloved. And he opens up that life to us by his grace. The one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is lover, love, and beloved. In our self-love, we have not been able to stop him from being that. We have not been able to stop him from being love, from giving himself to us and for us, from being the Trinity for us and loving us. There's no other God like this. Not even in our wildest imagination could we come up with a God like this. 
We make imaginary gods out of things that we see around us. Right? And we enter into imaginary contracts with them where we choose to believe that if we serve them, if we do everything that's expected of us in this relationship, then they will love us. Then they will give us their approval. Right? Then we will be happy. So we, we look at all kinds of things as gods. We look at our jobs. We look at romantic relationships. We look at our sports. We look at our grades in school. We look at politics, our appearance, material goods. And we think if we just behave according to the rules, they will give us what we want. But instead, the scriptures point out clearly in our experience, our our constant universal experience, is that we end up enslaved and dehumanized and empty and desperate for real love because there's no real love in these gods. There's no real, infinite, eternal, personal love to be found in these things. None of these so-called gods loved us first. None of these so-called gods gave themselves for us and died for us. None of these give themselves to us freely and constantly for deep, personal, eternal, intimate communion. There's only one God for whom these things are not only his his true actions, these things are his very being. There's only one God for whom these things are his very being, his eternal being, the deepest reality at the heart of reality. That's the triune God. It's the God of the Christian Bible. The Father loved you first, and he loves you always, and the Son gave himself for you, and he lives forever even now on your behalf. The Son has given to you this non-refundable deposit so that you can know that God is always accessible to you for the most intimate relationship, and he always will be, guaranteed. Your inheritance is God as your father because of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. Jürgen Moltmann said that the history of salvation is the history of the eternally living and triune God who draws us into and includes us in his eternal triune life with all the fullness of its relationships. And that last phrase, with all the fullness of its relationships, that's a reference to life in the church. That's what this letter is about. And uh, I'm going to stop there. Uh, We'll talk more about this later. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a glimpse of uh, what you're really like through your actions uh, that are recorded here beautifully in the scriptures and beautifully by Paul's own pen. You've given us a glimpse of your work in the world um, and your work in our lives. You've told us what is true about your actions, and these things uh, tell us truly what you're like and who you really are. And as you've caught us up into a relationship with yourself by your grace alone, we pray that you would keep us in your love, that you would keep our eyes and our, uh, our thoughts fixed on you so that dwelling with you and in you, so that uh, living the triune life in our lives uh, becomes more characteristic of who we are. We want to be refashioned in your image. We want to experience the joy and the love and the peace that come from knowing you in deep communion with you. And we want this to carry out, uh, 
to, to spill out into all of our lives, all of our relationships, especially our lives and relationships as we're here among your people, those uh, brothers and sisters who also know what it means to enjoy the Son's relationship with the Father through the Spirit who's been given to us. We pray that your life would electrify our lives and transform us and beautify this congregation. We pray that you would teach us, uh, even now at this table, of your great love for us, that you would teach us as we go from here of your love for us and keep us in your love so that we would be able to, uh, with one voice, glorify you, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.